Alison. Hi, Sarah. So, the rather unpopular pension reform that we've been uh, rabbiting on about for the last <laughs> few weeks is now law. It's over. Yeah, it's over. Well, it's well, over, but yeah, not. Yeah. The Constitutional Council validated most of it last Friday. That means the legal minimum retirement age will now go up uh, to 64 from the current 62. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Council also rejected calls for a referendum on the issue. And President Macron signed the bill into law uh, later that night, last yeah, Friday. Yeah, like really lost no time. Oh no, man with the mission, as we've often <laughs> said. For him, it's the end of the debate. He wants to move on. In the TV address on Tuesday, Macron said he understood that it was an unpopular reform, but in a short and, to be honest, rather wooden speech, he basically continued to say there is no alternative and he very quickly moved on to talking about other business. Yeah, and, and in a dig, a union leader said this speech could have been written by chat GPT, which whew, these days mm. is an insult, isn't it? Um, bon, it was rather yeah. generous and quite short. Bon, I'm not going to get into that one. No, no, no. <laughs> okay. Um, but this basically the saga is far from over. Unions are now calling for the traditional Labor Day marches on the 1st of May to be the biggest ever. Protests uh, are no longer just against the pension reform, far from it. There's lots of talk now about a democracy in crisis. Uh, interestingly, a highly respected historian, Pierre Rosson-Vallon, who is not what you would call a real leftist, uh, has said President Macron had failed to see a difference between respecting the letter of the Constitution, which he did, and its spirit. Rosson-Vallon said that Macron lacked political experience and uh, a dose of modesty. Mm. And France, he said, was going through its worst democratic crisis since the end of the Algeria war, uh, even worse than May 68. Wow, that's a big statement. Mm -mm. Um, Though when you see how party politics are being turned on their head these days, you know, the traditional left and right are quite weak, you, you do wonder what's coming next for France. So, Sarah, it's nearly a decade ago that the Rana Plaza garment factory in Bangladesh collapsed, killing more than a thousand workers. Yeah, I remember they, they were making clothes for some of France and Europe's most well-known clothing brands. Yeah, the accident was caused by human error. It wasn't an earthquake or whatever. Mm. And it drew attention to the scandalous working conditions in factories, especially in the developing world, where multinationals do not hesitate sometimes to cut corners on safety uh, in the name of profit. The tragedy led to a number of French NGOs and MPs pushing the government here to introduce a law on duty of care. Yeah, they said that since these companies benefit from this labour, they have a responsibility for the conditions in which people are working wherever they are. Yeah, the so-called Rana Plaza law was passed in 2017. It was the first of its kind in the world. And in short, it means that businesses that are headquartered in France that employ at least 5,000 staff here or 10,000 worldwide are accountable for what happens further down the production chain. In particular, they're responsible for their subcontractors' compliance with human rights. Companies, therefore, have a duty to avoid serious harm to human rights, health, safety and the environment. And they have to provide annual due diligence reports on their operations. The law also provides a way for employees to get compensation. 
Now, the hope was that the working conditions and social rights of millions of workers in whatever industry, not just textile industry, would gradually be improved. Yeah, it was seen as a major decision at the time, and France was proud to be seen as a pioneer in this. Yeah. There are currently 15 cases, either before the courts or where summons have been served. They include, for example, Casino over deforestation in the Amazon, Hoshi over the non-respect of union rights in Turkey. There's also a case against Danone for plastic pollution. The first lawsuit to use the Rana Plaza law was filed in 2019. Uh, several NGOs sued the French oil giant Total Energy to try and get them to suspend their controversial Ugandan-Tanzanian oil pipeline. But in February this year, the court threw the case out on procedural grounds. Mm, doesn't really bode well for the law's supporters, I guess. Mm. Um, were their expectations too high? That's an interesting question. I talked about this to Neila Ajaltouni. She's coordinator with Ethique sur l'étiquette, the French branch of the Clean Clothes campaign, and one of the NGOs that helped push for the Rana Plaza law. I asked her about what has and has not been achieved through this law. We still think it's a crucial law because it's the first law that ever allow us to engage the responsibility for a transnational company, for a mother company, for violations or uh, environmental damages throughout the whole supply chain. So this is still a, a huge um, milestone and it's a milestone for the actual um, directive on due diligence at the European level that is currently under discussion. How many lawsuits have there been? Uh, so there's around 15 cases. Uh, using this obligation of vigilance. There is a, a very symbolic case against Total for uh, a project it has uh, built in Uganda, an oil pipeline in Uganda. The case was lost in February. Well, the case was lost in February in front of this very specific judge. But actually, uh, civil society still have other options to use a less short-term uh, procedure. But certainly the case is not finished yet. Um, but it's a very symbolic one because it's a bit early to say if the law is um, efficient enough because we had a battle for two years at least to know which jurisdiction would be in charge of uh, cases under the law on due, on due diligence. And this is because the company Total attacked in front of the courts the, the question of the jurisdiction. So it's two years we lost mm -hmm. uh, to use the law and two years of human rights violations that go on. So it's a bit early. But what we can see is that at least it allow a first step to hope for an access of victim to justice, mm -hmm. which was not possible before this law. So, so far, have any workers around the world, especially in developing countries, have they received compensation through this law? Not yet. And it's uh, a bit early because um, the, the first cases have just um, started uh, because you have two steps when you use the law. The first is an official uh, request for companies to publish an adequate plan of vigilance, and this can take time. And the second step is really entering in the core a question of violations or environmental damages, and this takes takes a long time. So the farthest case is the, the case against Total, the oldest and actually also the more developed actually okay. in front of justice. There are about 150 French companies uh, affected by the law. We think it's around, one, around 150 companies. We don't even have this list, which is also a failure of the law and of the system of control. When the law was voted, it was on the impetus of NGOs, but also um, socialist MPs. So it was right at the end of this socialist uh, presidency. And then in comes Emmanuel Macron with a slightly different agenda, very business friendly. 
the MEDEF, the Bosses Union, was against the text from the beginning. Do you feel that since it came into being and with the current government being so business friendly, do you feel that there is as much political will behind it as you would like? It's a very important question. And actually the MEDEF, uh, the whole actually uh, business um, uh, system was against the law together and hand in hand with the former Ministry for Economics and Finance, which was uh, Emmanuel Macron at the time. He was finance minister and he was uh, already very close and working hand to hand with those uh, business uh, sphere. And we really had to lead a strong battle against even this minister to allow the law to pass. Uh, one thing is sure is that under the current government and the current um, majority at the assembly, we would never have put so many forces because we would have wasted our time trying to work on the progressive laws with such an unprogressive government and president. But one good thing is that despite this closeness with uh, the economic world, we managed to secure the law under the actual government because it was also a possibility that it decides to undermine it or not to. You were saying that one of the good things about this law is that it ended up spurring on a similar law yes. at the European yes. level, which I guess was always necessary because you can't really have France just doing True. its thing in its corner. And actually we always consider the French law as a first step toward a European law, of course, which is the, the good level for regulation, of course, but we, we felt we needed to have a courageous country that uh, dares uh, start to pass legislation on the, on the subject. And in 2022, we finally had the first draft of what would be a directive on due diligence that tries, and this is the advocacy we really push for, to go beyond, that really that really goes beyond the French law on due diligence because it has some loopholes like the narrow definition of the supply chain that doesn't really allow us to hold companies accountable for tier two or tier three uh, factories, for example. So the question of the supply chain, the question of the burden of the proof that relies entirely on the victims in countries which it's nearly impossible to or very difficult to, to, to prove the responsibility of a company uh, and to have access of course to proofs and also the system of, li of liability and it's, it's really the core thing we try to to have in this new uh, directive on due diligence. Unfortunately what we see is that France hasn't been the leader it used to be a few years ago at the European Commission because on the contrary the French government has been trying to undermine also the directive on due diligence especially linked with the finance sector, with banks. So uh, it was a real disappointment that France didn't build on this pioneer role it had at the international and European level on this due diligence law and to uh, go back uh, hand in hand with the economic lobby. So we hope that we still manage to have a strong text at the European level. And so when can we expect the European directive to become law? Because I guess that is the ultimate goal. That is the ultimate goal. And actually, we're in the middle of a very important last round of negotiations. So the parliament will have its final vote at the end of May, normally. And we, we hope, we can hope to have um, a final law at the end of the year. And then you know that countries will have two years, actually, to transpose in their own legislation, the new directive on due diligence. And we, we will be very vigilant that it really goes beyond the French law, of course, when we transpose the directive. 
So how do you feel now, um, that, you know, where we're at in 2023 as an activist and you're still doing the same job, so I guess you haven't lost hope. We were, I think, proud and maybe didn't really imagine that we would reach those kind of laws in such a short time because at the European level actually it was not that long and I think what is really um, a, a good uh, maybe something positive is that we are finally building a nearly consensus consensus on a political consensus on the fact that transnational companies cannot be left totally free to do what they want in the globalization because it ends up with terrible uh, human rights violation and uh, environmental damages and that there is a need for a legal liability to hold them accountable. Uh, but my, my main concern is of course the weight of uh, economic uh, lobbies that really fight against and on a very ideological basis the fact that uh, a transnational company can be regulated, cannot do business as it wants and unfortunately they share the same uh, political position with the right wings, the liberal that is very present of course at the European Union. So we really need, need to, to fight those uh, forces from uh, ancient times <laughs> to be able to go forward in, in, in society when we, we, we consider that we need to put labor human rights in before business as usual. So not much mention there of clothing companies at all, actually. Mm. Interesting, given that it was the Rana Plaza clothing factory disaster that did kick all this off. Yes, Ajal Tuni told me maybe calling it the Rana Plaza law was maybe a misnomer <laughs> because, yeah, it's the law is really designed for getting multinationals, very big named entities to provide this due diligence. It's less suited to the textile industry, which by its very nature has all these, you know, different stages in garment making and it means it uses a lot of subcontractors. Of course, NGOs like hers are carrying on helping textile workers to get better working conditions. Also, the European Directive, if it is adopted in 2025, does provide for this duty of care obligation to apply to much smaller companies. So that could make it more easily applicable to the textile industry. So back 10 years now to April 23rd, 2013, France passed its gay marriage law. Yeah, the Mariage pour tous, Marriage for All. It was a project pushed by then socialist president François Hollande and in particular the justice minister at the time, Christiane Taubira. Yeah, and it wasn't a given at all that it would pass. It's an issue that really divided the country. There was a huge amount of opposition, months of protests. Yeah, for example, the Manif pour tous, mm -hmm. uh, the demonstration for all. Yeah, it brought out tens of thousands of opponents. Um, organizers argued they weren't against same-sex marriage per se, but against gay couples raising children because the law, by allowing marriage, opened up full parental rights for same-sex couples. So it was for the children, they said, that they opposed the law. During this time, France saw a surge in homophobic attacks, but the legislation also had a lot of support. 
lots and lots of demonstrations in favor, and lawmakers hashed it out. They debated nearly 137 hours over three months. Three months. Mm. That's a bit of a contrast with the pension reform, isn't it? (laughs) Yeah, which was pushed through much quicker. Anyway, um, the gay marriage law was finally passed in April 2013, so April 23rd. It came into effect a month later on May 18th, and 10 days after that, May 29th, 2013, was France's first ever same-sex wedding between Vincent Autain and Bruno Boileau in Montpellier. Vincent told me that it was a bit of an accident that he and Bruno were the first, though I think it was a bit more deliberate than that. Mm-hmm. Vincent was an activist at the time, and he'd been approached by the government spokesperson, Najat Vallaud-Belkacem, when the bill was first introduced in October 2012, because she was looking for a couple to highlight, you know, to personalize what she knew would be difficult debates in Parliament. So she announced that they would be the first couple to get married. Najat Valo Belkacem made this announcement to put a face on the upcoming debates that could otherwise have seemed very abstract. She wanted to give them a human face. Of course, that announcement didn't guarantee they would be actually be the first. But the mayor of Montpellier of the time, Hélène Mondroux, was a big proponent of gay marriage, and she'd allowed the couple to file all the administrative paperwork even before the law was passed. So everything was in place when it came into effect. And it was huge. 400 people were there, including 200 journalists. Yeah, hardly the most intimate of weddings. (laughs) No, no. Though, as Vincent says, weddings in France are public events. Anyone can attend weddings at city halls in France, so either way, our wedding couldn't be private. Given the circumstances, because we were the first, a lot of people came. The public part of the ceremony was broadcast around the world, but the more private events were never broadcast in any way. Afterwards, we had our own time with our family and friends, dinner, toasts, everything that you would do around a wedding. In 10 years, Vincent says that gay marriage has become accepted law in France. C'est très difficile de revenir sur une loi. It's very difficult to roll back a law that gives you rights like this one does. Any politician or political party seeking to overturn marriage for same-sex couples would run into problems. The Constitutional Council would almost certainly reject such a move on the grounds it would create inequality. So it would be very complicated to overturn this law. And what would you do with the people who are already married? Unmarry them? However, we still have to remain vigilant. You see what is happening here and in other Western countries on other issues, like the right to abortion in the United States. We don't know what the future will bring. That's why it's important to remember the history. Vincent and Bruno have since divorced. They were married seven years of their 12-year relationship. Well, the right to marriage, after all, does bring about the right to divorce. Yep, yep. <laughs> the very, very, very big difference is the divorce law. And I can assure you, I can see in my office people who are happy to be married just to be able to divorce properly. That's Florent Berdot, a lawyer specialized in family law and specifically same-sex family law. Ten years ago, when the gay marriage law was passed, he was in a relationship. We were a young couple, so I didn't remember if we really thought about getting married already. But of course, it was like an evidence to be in the street and uh, having a demonstration as we do in France. So I was in the streets because it was like 
an evidence that we should have the same right, even if we were not quite sure enough. To be honest, I was sure enough I wanted to get married one day, and with Benoit, of course. And I think he was not as sure as I was. I'm not sure he needed marriage to be happy, but at the end, he was the one uh, proposing. We got married in 2016, so not exactly the day after the law. We took our own time, but we knew it was possible, and which, which already was a huge thing. On like at a personal level, it's true. People feel like, well, you know, why do I need marriage to prove my love and affection for somebody? But it, marriage comes with all these rights. Um, what does it mean to, to feel protected in a relationship that previously wasn't? T to be honest, in France, we had before marriage, uh, we had what we call PACS, uh, like kind of civil union. And now we can say that PACS is almost, but I, I, I insist on almost, as protective as marriage, you can, if you want, have inheritance law, you have different kind of civil consequences. But as I said to my own clients, the main difference between marriage and tax, uh, civil union, is the divorce. Divorce law is a protective law for one of the two members of the couple. And I can see Every day, people who are not married getting separated, and one of the members of the couple may regret not being married because it makes a huge difference. The divorce law has a lot of civil effects that protects the one who is less wealthy. These rights and this law, do you find that 10 years down the road, it's solid? Like for you, do you feel comfortable that, that this will never change? I feel comfortable that now it's the law and that we will never come back, but... Uh, since we saw in the United States that it was a reality, a possibility that we could go back in time with the abortion law, we never know what will happen and we never know who will get in an office in France someday. And of course, we used to say that the Constitution makes it impossible to go back on the law, but we never know. Well, I'm, I don't feel uh, in danger. I don't feel like, uh, oh my God, they will take back, tell back my laws, but we never know. So both those guys evoke the overturning of abortion rights in the US as a, you know, a warning that rights in France could be maybe more fragile than they than they seem. Yeah, yeah. And Vincent, another LGBT rights activist, also point out the wave of homophobic attacks that came out of the fight over gay marriage and that have continued. Ironically, that debate and the demonstrations did open up a lot of homophobia. In, in French, we say libérer la parole, kind of freed words that, that people may not have previously dared to say publicly. And that is still very much alive. Nous étions deux dans la rizière, mais une nuit, mon mari fut terminé avec 400 000 hommes et leur bombardier, avec 400 000 hommes et leur casse toxique. La défaite militaire suivra l'échec politique. Nos paysans dressaient les abeilles sauvages au combat. Nous sommes toujours là. So, Alison, remember we talked about the Vietnam War a few weeks ago? Yeah, the Paris Peace Accords in 1973, mm -hmm. uh, which ended this drawn-out war that the U.S. had waged against the communist South Vietnamese and the Viet Cong. Yeah, yeah, France hosted those peace talks, though wanted to avoid getting involved in the war, because a decade earlier it had ended a century of colonial rule in Indochina and had split Vietnam in half, which ended up causing the civil war that the Americans got involved in. Mm -hmm. 
Now, this history isn't well known in France, and Marine Bachelot and Guyenne would like to change that. This is a recording of Trantonia, played at the start of the one-woman show that Bachelot and Guyenne wrote about trans life and activism. Trantonia is a Franco-Vietnamese woman who lived through the Vietnam War and was exposed to Agent Orange, a herbicide that the U.S. military used to clear out jungle and crops in North Vietnam. They sprayed it from planes. Agent Orange contains dioxin that causes blood cancers and birth defects and impacts not only those directly exposed to it, but their children as well. Tranton Ya covered the communist South Vietnamese as a journalist, and she waded through swamps soaked with Agent Orange. Her first child, a daughter born in 1968, died before she was two years old with heart defects. Her two other children also have bone and blood defects. Tran herself has had breast cancer, diabetes, and other illnesses caused by dioxin. Je suis relié à tous les morts, relié à tous les vivants. Tran, who's 81 years old, took Monsanto and Dow Chemical and other companies who produced and distributed Agent Orange to court in France. She argued they knowingly supplied material to the U.S. Army that they knew would harm people. In the play called No Corps Empoisonné, or Poisoned Bodies, Tran is played by the Franco-Japanese actress Angelica Kiyomi Tissere Sekine. Ce moment, on l'a attendu depuis des années. On est à Évry, France. Marine Bachelot Nguyen wrote the play after reading about trans life and activism. She's made a career of writing and producing political theater, or as she calls it, documentary theater. Trantonia's lawsuit was actually thrown out last year, but she's appealing it and continues to fight. Bachelot Nguyen told me she sees Tran as something of a mythical figure who could help audiences understand the history of Vietnam and maybe embrace the fight for social justice. Many people, when they see the show, they say, oh, I'm so ignorant about all this, about the Vietnam uh, story, which is linked with France, which is linked with uh, the States, which is linked with the world. I think the play allows to condense all this story in one hour and 20 minutes. Historically, uh, France has a link with Vietnam, so we need to know about the Vietnamese story. We need to know about Agent Orange because uh, Monsanto, Do Chemical, and other societies spread other products in our earth. I think about glyphosate. Uh, so we are all concerned. Yeah, all the herbicides and pesticides. That's it. You have, uh, your family is originally Vietnamese. Is there a sort of a personal connection here? Like the story that could have happened to you? Well, my, my mother and my grandparents are from Vietnam. So they moved in France after decolonization. And um, the story of Frontonia is very inspiring. My Vietnamese grandfather was not uh, on the same part of politics because he feared communism. And Trantonia <laughs> is a kind of, uh, she was in the Communist Party, even if now she has critics about the communist ideology as it was. And, well, I think uh, transmission by Trantonia is as well for me about uh, history, but also about culture, 
about something spiritual, about how we, we can live with our dead ancestors. She brings something to me which is very, very spiritual too. So on some level, this is a way, like, I guess, you know, theater as a way of just presenting history in a way that's a little bit more digestible mm -hmm. and understandable. Yes. Um, you're also really interested in promoting the work of minorities in the arts in France. You know, how often do we get Vietnamese history on a stage or just Asian history or just Asian characters in general? Yes, I try to mix history, intimacy, in heritage about, yes, these intimate and political stories about France and Vietnam, and to bring to the stage Asian characters, Asian actors and actresses. Because in France, Asian people are kind of model minority, very discreet immigration, So I think it's very important to exist, to be on stage, to be in the stories. I would say the same for black people, people from Maghreb, but I think they are more present in the theater and maybe we are more discreet as Asian artists, but I think we try to, <laughs> to exist, to tell our stories. I'm not, I'm not telling only stories about Asian people. In my play, I also speak about Islamophobia, about racism. I try to embrace many injustices or many stories of minorities to make them exist on stage. These are a lot of issues that seem to to a certain population, at least in France, like bother. You have a lot of people who don't want to talk about colonialism and say, you know, why are we dwelling on the past? Can you talk about that, that the reaction to sort of what you see in the broader culture in France right now? Well, there, there is a, a very big deny in France of sexism, of racism, of, uh, of the heritage of, of colonialism. Uh, and it's very hard for young people derived from this colonial slavery past to make their life in France. So I think it's really important to tell these stories, to explore our colonial past, not to, not to put fire on the country, but just to share that we've had this past and now how can we do? But we can't deny the past, all these dead people, all these colonial crimes. And It would be a way to live in peace, but we can't avoid a conflict at one moment. France likes when women, uh, when poor people, when black people are victims. They love to, to help the victims. But when the victim says, we are not only victims, but um, we are political subjects, we want to be treated equally, well, it makes some noise. It makes some resistance from white people, of course. And I try through my place to bring this voice on the stage. And I think the artistic process allows the message to be received better because poetry, emotions can enter and try to convince people better than when we talk, uh, I mean, <laughs> at the cafe or in a demonstration. <laughs> I guess in an age of online entertainment and digital media, like staging plays with real people, does it still talk to people? And, and how do you feel sort of faced with like the new reality of how people are getting information? Yeah, I think the live is very important. So to be in the same place with an audience, with actors on stage, 
creates a very strong emotion, creates some concern, some other codes. If Trantonia's life is adapted in cinema or in Netflix, maybe they would have a young actress for a young, old actress for her in her age now. The, the thing, for example, is that Angelica Kiyomi Sersekine is playing Nia at 80, then at 70, then at 5 or 15 or 22. And that's quite magic with uh, with theatre, with these uh, codes. And well, the, the emotion of uh, of the public, of the audience at the end of the show are very touching. The end of the show opens on pictures, film of demonstration, demonstrations against Monsanto, because every year there are these marches against Monsanto and other chemical groups. I hope the show could open on these horizons of uh, activism and also this idea of fighting against injustice even if it seems impossible, even if it's incredible that a grandmother <laughs> is in trial <laughs> against those enormous groups. But she's here, she's alive, and she gives hope. We've come to the end of Spotlight on France. We're a production of the English service of Radio France International. This episode was mixed by Cécile Pompiani. And if you have any questions or comments, do send us an email at spotlight.france at rfi.fr. And you can find us on Instagram. We're Spotlight on France. Get previous episodes at rfienglish.com or find us wherever you get your podcasts. We'll be back in two weeks' time on Thursday, May the 4th. Bye-bye, Sarah. Bye, Alison. Bye.